0: Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship.
1: And now, your host, Jared Van Heemes. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Heath, and we are here to become better Habitat managers. What's going on today, everyone? Welcome back. We have another great episode for you here today. We have Mr. Chad Sylvester from Exodus Outdoor Gear. And what we're going to be talking about with Chad is all things trail cameras. So Exodus makes a, a bunch of awesome trail cameras, among other things, but we're really diving into the technical side. Um we talk about you know how Chad grew up in, in Ohio and how he got into the outdoor space, um, you know what he does for a living, and we talk about his approach with setting up cameras on properties, some techniques and challenges, unique areas. Uh, we talk about cell cameras versus traditional. You know you don't always need a cell camera if you're uh, you know in a spot that doesn't call for one. Um, some GPS technology with cameras, uh, among other things, guys. We talk a lot of detail how cameras work, the sounds that they make, all things trail cameras, dialing it down. So we hope you love it. Let us know, and uh, we'll get right here with Chad in a second. I want to thank um, our land plan clients. We just hung up with Chris Jones out of Nebraska, lives in uh, western Nebraska. We're helping Chris out on his uh, farm out in western Nebraska. He has antelope, mule deer, white turkey, pheasant, it's pretty awesome, guys. Uh, Brian and I are just getting started on this one, and um, it's just, you know we just we love helping you guys out, helping landowners out, getting a new point of view. Um, any ideas to add into the ideas you might have? Um, see if you missed anything. Start you off in the right direction, so you're not talking about I wish I would have done this differently five years ago. Whatever it may be, um, Brian and I we're, we're here to help. We've learned a lot over the past few years, and we definitely want to kick it into our, our listeners and, and help out, you know, help you guys learn and, and shed our light where and when we can. So, Chris, appreciate you uh, hopping on the podcast with us for, for the land plan, and I uh, look forward to working on that with you, buddy. Now, and if anybody else wants to inquire about land plans, we have a few inquiries I'm replying to in the inbox right now, uh, but you can check that out at habitatpodcast.com slash land plans. And also on that website, habitatpodcast.com, all of our gear, podcasts, um, and even the Habitat Journal. I'll be posting some new blog posts or journal articles up there. We have a few from uh, from Ohio, we have some from Georgia, and we have uh, some here from Michigan even, uh, yours truly, that'll be going up there. So just more content for you guys, more information, and and cool tips and tricks, things we, we go through, books we like, sprayers we like, etc. So Check us out there at HappyJetPodcast.com. We really uh, appreciate the support. And I want to thank Realtree United Country Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction for his support in this podcast. Guys, I hung up with Chad today, and uh, the market is insane around here. You know, my wife and I have actually been looking at trying to get on a little bit bigger piece of property as well, Um, something we can enjoy with the kids and, and just have a little more room to roam. And, uh, so we, we've been just looking around a little bit and it is, it is insane out there. If you're thinking about selling your property, um, which I would in turn have to sell mine to move on, it's, it's a great time. I mean, there is nothing on the market right now. I've been looking a decent amount and Chad, you know, Chad's got lots of buyers. He's got a few listings up um, at his website, but if you are thinking about listing your property, you want to get top dollar for it, uh, right now is the time. So check out, um. Real Street, United country land pro, Lake States Realty and Auction. His logo and website is directly on our homepage. You can find Chad Thalen, or if you search Chad Thalen Habitat Podcast, you'll hear him on three or four different episodes as well, where we talk about the market, some tips and tricks you can do to enhance your property, etc. So, uh, again, if you guys are thinking about selling, get a hold of Chad. Now is a great time. I want to thank Packer Max Colts Packers. Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Morse Nursery, and the Habitat Hook. These partners of ours are nice enough to help, uh, you know, support the podcast. We'd love it if you guys could help with them. We have discount codes listed in the show notes below this episode. If you just scroll down, you'll see how you can help and save some money with them. Uh, but let's get right to trail cameras, Exodus Outdoor Gear. Mr. Chad Sylvester. All right, everybody, we're back. Another episode of the Habitat Podcast. We have my co-host Brian Hallbly on the line, the uh, biggest tech geek I know out there. knows how to work the computer real well. And uh, <laughs> we have none other than Chad Sylvester from Exodus Outdoor Gear on the line. How are you doing tonight, Chad?
2: I'm doing fantastic. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk to you guys. How's the, How's things, everything your way?
1: Oh, not bad. We got we got snowed on last night, so that's cool, I guess. Um, <laughs> didn't really make me want to get up and go turkey hunting this morning, but turkey season's open. Spring is here. You know, we're getting into the soil sampling and all that good stuff. So, Brian, how's it going over your way, man?
3: Same. It was uh, pushing summer for the last week or so, and then we're back to, I think this is our fourth winter now in PA, so... <laughs> But our, our turkey season doesn't come in until May 1st, unfortunately, so no worries there.
1: Now, well, hey, spring is here, lots of fun stuff, and, you know, deer season is right around the corner, um, so I know I'm already thinking about it, and we got to thinking about trail cameras the other day, and Brian thought, well, we should talk to the guys at Exodus. So here we are. Chad, why don't you give us a little introduction, you know, who you are, where you're from, what you do for a living, um... What you grew up doing, that whole thing. Let's hear about, you know, yeah. paint a picture of you.
2: Yeah, I'll give you the, I'll give you the uh, elevator speech here. All right. Um, so as you mentioned, my name's Chet Sylvester. I am co-owner, co-founder of a company called Exodus Outdoor Gear, which is essentially Exodus Exodus Truck Cameras. Um, it's a direct-to-consumer company that we started back in 2015 to really fill, I guess, two voids in the truck camera marketplace. One was the need for a company to have endless customer and product support. Um, you know, I've been using trail cameras since the early 2000s, and my brother was using cameras even prior to that. And, it, you know, regardless of which brand or model, I guess, that you were using, it just seemed like there was a lack of effort um, on the support side. So that was one of our focuses, and then the other focus was, you know, trying to solve the problem of longevity, because so many of these uh, consumer electronics are built with an obsolescence mindset, where, you know, if they're if a company's warranting that product for a year, well, then that product's you know built or designed to last for you know 14 months, um, and so on and so forth. So, being direct to consumer, I know a lot of a lot of companies or people will use that as a buzzword right now. And and it's certainly trending that way. But in 2015, we just were able to understand and know the power, harness the power of the Internet Web 2.0. And some of that came from following Jason Harrison at KUYU. You know, when when Jason left, when he left Sitka and, you know, started the blog and documented that whole process of um, building a, a a competitor to, you know, what Sitka was doing. With the, the competitive advantage of being direct to consumer, we've we really, or I personally really bought into his story and that message, and um, that had a lot to do with how we got started as a company. But you know, the HQ here at Exodus is in Northeast Ohio. Um, we're right around Warren, or just outside of uh, outside of Youngstown, and we've been here for you know six years. May will be our our, our six year anniversary, and really, what um, you know. Again, what we focus on is is the trail camera marketplace. And initially, when we had started Exodus. We had uh, you know grand ideas of you know being this giant company and branching in and solving problems throughout the industry. And we quickly learned from, I guess, failure um, and a little bit of ignorance to really what it what it took to to have a company and to grow a company in this in this niche or this marketplace was that we needed to stay just. Stay in our lane and stay and stay focused, and really um, be competitive at one thing before we started to expand into other product categories. Um, so that's where the I know that it's confusing for for some people. There's a slight branding conflict, but I promise there will be a day where we uh, diverge a little bit and and grow into other other product categories. Um, you know, and Exodus, how I how Exodus came to be, I guess I guess I'll back up and tell my my personal hunting journey. I grew up on a small rural um community, you know, 1500 people. I was lucky enough that my grandfather owned a second generation farm and hunting wasn't really it wasn't really a serious endeavor within my family. You know, my grandfather owned the farm, he had a business, my, you know, my my parents worked on my uncle's work, they worked full-time jobs and it was you know, whitetail hunting was a – it was a pastime. It was a hobby for, for everyone in my family. And, you know, growing up, deer camp or, you know, not necessarily deer camp because it wasn't really a camp, but this gun week, when gun season rolled around, that was, you know, the, that five days then, because that's all we had, maybe it was six, six days, those six days, that was deer hunting. And growing up, the kind of the, the right or the passage to manhood was that, you know, you turn 13, you take your hunter ed or your safety course, and you get to go hunt with, you know, dad, grandpa, uncles. And that's, you know, that's how I got started deer hunting. And, you know, throughout that, uh, those teen years, we did, we hunted small game, uh, mostly, mostly squirrels. We did not hunt turkeys because, I, in fact, I can't even remember anybody hunting turkeys until I was in my 20s. I never even saw a turkey till I was in my 20s. So that's really what it was. Um, you know, just growing up as normal farm kids, uh, as a lot of people do. But then, you know, fast forward to maybe the late 90s. I was probably six. I was 16, maybe 98, 99. Uh, I was lucky enough to kill. Um, you know, hundred and seventy seven inch non non typical um, um mainframe 10 pointer
1: David.
0: for my
2: very first year ever. And that's where <laughs> Yeah, you want to talk about that's it. That's awesome.
1: You? I want to hear that story.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll uh we'll I'll dive into that a little bit deeper, but that that is what sparked um the passion of not not hunting just being a hobby, but more of a way of life. Uh at seventeen I started archery hunting. And that led to four miserable years of failures and screw ups and blunders. But I think, you know, those experiences are really important for, for young hunters. I think that a lot of people now are you know, they see um, you know, all these big deer getting killed across the Midwest and they automatically, you know, want to replicate um, that success. And I don't think um, I don't think it's healthy for people or young hunters to even to even partake in that kind of mind frame or or thought I guess but so that's kind of who I am uh what Exodus is and kind of where I came from and how I got started uh whitetail hunting
1: awesome thanks for that that was a great uh little bio there I think um like you said it's kind of interesting you see all these Pope and Young deer dropping on Facebook or Instagram every day throughout the fall and you just feel like you can go out and do the same thing but uh learning from failure is probably the best way to learn. So um, I guess to the opposite of
2: that, your first buck, let's hear a quick little story on, on how that went down. Congratulations on that. Jeez. Yeah, thank you. So my grandfather, you know, I mentioned that no one was really a serious white-tail hunter, but my grandfather probably took it more serious than anyone else in the family. So he was ahead of the game when it comes to the QDM and food plotting and letting deer reach maturity. And, you know, growing up, I can remember taking off the first two days of school and, you know, you hunt with the guys and you come back to school on a Wednesday and everybody's talking about all the deer that they saw, the deer that they killed. And it was always on drives or pushes. And I was always butthurt because my grandfather would never let us drive deer ever. If we were on his property, we were not driving deer. It was important for him Um, to teach us and show us that, you know, I guess some woodsmanship skills, you know, how to cut a track, where deer was going to go for security or for safety. And then he always had the thought of um, gun drives being not not necessarily unethical, but less safe depending on the personnel or, you know, who was actually in that drive. So he was always against us driving deer. And as kids, like, everyone else was killing deer because of gun drives. Like, he was driving me nuts. And it was just like I was missing out on something. So that year, the 98, 99 season, it was on a Saturday. It was the last day, last day of the season. And we came back into the barn to eat lunch, and I talked to my uncles into putting on this little push. So we went over to the north side of the property, and my uncles were walking through the woods, and they stuck me, the kid, you know, out on the railroad bed, which was adjacent to uh, an alfalfa or hay- a hayfield, really, and we got down. I don't know. We had walked maybe a couple hundred yards, and we were just getting to the to the uh, to the field edge, and this giant frame ten pointer with just stuff everywhere came cutting out in front of me, maybe ten yards away. Never knew the deer. I mean, just the the luckiest situation you could ever put yourself in. And I squeezed off a couple rounds. Uh, actually, shot the deer through the neck, and it ran maybe a couple hundred yards up towards the road, died in the ditch. So I was able to go get my pickup truck there. I'm in the back of the pickup truck, drive straight down to the farm, you know, take care of the deer, field dressing and everything right at the farm. And, of course, um, word, I guess, or news spread of that deer being killed by, you know, a kid really, really quick, and it turned into like a, I guess, a, a, a small party. I mean, all the neighbors came over, and I just thought it was like the coolest thing ever. And I, you know, always wanted to replicate that um you know with a bow and that's that's what really drove me um into the obsession that I have with with whitetails was was that experience awesome
3: that's incredible congrats again on that for sure
2: hopefully really nice. uh
3: you'll be able to replicate it again this year <laughs>
2: yeah yeah you know it's um it's weird that 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 whole that whole memory the scenario the way that played out even that whole evening uh, with friends and family, and um, you know, going to school the next week or whatever, like that's etched in my etched in my brain brain forever. So it's pretty pretty special.
3: Excellent. So one of the main reasons we got you on here, Chad, we're starting a new slate with the new season coming up this fall. Everybody's talking about trail cameras. What's the latest coming out? Before we dive into all the the latest technology and everything, I just want to cover what your approach is. As a guy that makes trail cameras, you understand, you know, more than most about how to use them, the best techniques, and just walk us through when you're approaching setting up a a couple of trail cameras or a handful on a piece of property and how you go about that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So if it's a, you know, if it's a new piece of property um, that I've never kind of stepped foot on, I take the approach of I'm casting a, a really wide net to gain as much information um, on that local deer herd as, as possible. I want to know how many deer, what the deer density is in the neighborhood. I want to know what deer are, are on my parcel. I want to know what deer are traveling through my parcel. Um, I want to know you know, where the bedding is. So if it's a 100-acre piece, I'm putting out as many cameras as I possibly can. Um, and for me, it's a lot different because I have access to so many damn cameras. But for a typical guy, if you're, you know, a, maybe you're going to run four or five, cameras, I would prefer to see that bumped up um, and gain that information as as fast as possible. But ideally, you're setting, you know, you're you're going into that piece and you're trying to identify what we consider low impact areas. So these would be areas traditionally away from bedding. These are um, food sources. These are ag fields, food plots, um, mineral sites, you know, bait stations or feeders things where you are a lot less intrusive, um, you know, to the deer neighborhood or or, or to your deer herd. And those are really areas that we're going to run, I guess, standard SD card cameras Um, because those are areas where, like a a bait station or a mineral site or a feeder, for example, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go in and necessarily run a cell camera there unless you you have them because your footprint is going to be there, you know, anyways. So we like to focus um, those cell cameras on more in, kind of intrusive areas. But then once we have an idea of, of what's going on, um, the camera strategy kind of shifts throughout the season. Um, you know, that going in and learning about what deer are there, you know, depending on what type of, and you guys know this probably as much as anybody, uh, depending on what type of habitat you have on that farm, um, it's going to dictate where and when those deer are spending time on on your parcel, so it may take you you know a full calendar year to kind of to kind of figure this out. Um, but as you know, as that season starts to shift and you're able to actually physically hunt um, hunt that parcel, then I'm going to make sure my cameras are in um, you know the same feeding and less intrusive areas, but I'm also going to be putting cameras where I have interest to hunt and specifically hanging them in locations where I can access, um, access those cameras on my way to a stand or they're very close to a stand. And then the cameras that are outside of, uh, kind of those areas, I'm going to leave them set for probably longer than what most people, um, are willing are willing to do because I am a firm believer that the number one mistake you can make with trail cameras is checking them too often and altering or influencing, negative, negatively impacting deer movement. So I'm a, you know, we've been running 100-plus cameras for, for six-plus years, and I am 100% bought in, convinced, and have um, you know, total confidence in historical and annual uh, deer patterns and data.
3: Yeah, so walk us through that a little bit. We had uh, Don Higgins on, and he's he's a big proponent of that. Also, mm-hmm. walk us through your approach to that with the historical data.
2: Yeah, so Don's probably, or he, to my knowledge, was the first one to even speak on this on this topic, probably back in 2010, 11, 12, and we never were really bought in until probably 2000, probably 2000. 15 or 16 and we were on a i had a lot of public ground and we're on a a specific piece in ohio that's that's big woods um there's no ag there's not a whole lot of structure to that piece Um, what little structure there is is typically coming from tsi clear cuts um select cuts those types of things and the deer density is just awfully low um a couple deer per square mile it's under three for sure, but somewhere, you know, two and a half, two point eight 2.8 deer per square mile. Um, but they're found in pockets, you know, so you get into a pocket, there's more deer you get, you know, in an area where it's open hardwoods, there's, there's, there's less deer. So that, that number is a little bit deceiving. However, we just spent the first, I don't know, two years down there just really, really chasing our tails, trying to pick out and hunt a single deer and, a couple of us were down there. We were just never having success doing that. So the following year, we just decided to, you know, put cameras back in the same locations where he had pictures of the year prior. And surprisingly, November, there was a specific nine-pointer. Like, was a 116-inch nine-pointer my buddy was hunting. That deer in 2000, we'll say 2014. 2014, we had pictures of him for the first time. November 2nd, November 3rd, coming in to work a scrape um, that was kind of in between a clear cut and some doe bedding on a ridge top. And he spent the year chasing that deer, and then he spent the next summer trying to find that deer. And I'm talking there's 50 cameras out for one deer, and we can't find them, not a single picture. And um, then fast forward 365, November 3rd, that deer shows up on the same scrape that he was, you know, 366 days before that. We set up, We set up to hunt him the next day. And, and shot him at 10 steps from a tree stand. So that, you know, experiencing that, seeing that with my own eyes is what made me a believer, and then continually do that with specific deer in that setting where there's not a lot of structure. Deer tend to roam and be a little more nomadic, um, you know, than an uh, area that has more structure like ground or, or some swamps or even, you know, some timber that has more structure there. Uh, the only way that we've ever found success, um, in those types of pieces. So that is really our strategy. We'll, we'll find, you know, we have a cast a wide net. We find a specific deer that we really want to hunt or maybe a couple specific deer. And then we document those pictures. We delete nothing. We save every single picture of a buck as long as he's identifiable and catalog him into a spreadsheet. Um, and that spreadsheet typically has, you know, Daylight activity or nighttime. It's kind of separated into two. And then we really focus on a three day window around um, multiple daylight opportunities uh, for the following year. And that's, that's, that is how we plan the hunt. And I understand that most guys or a lot of guys can't do that because, you know, they're bound by work constraints or family life or, sure. or whatever. But for what we have going on, where we can kind of not drop, drop things on a hat because we have obligations too, but we have a little more, um, decision-making power on on our work schedule, I guess. Um, We've just found great success, and it it plays true whether it's, you know, in the summer of a deer coming back back to his fall range, like uh, August 18th is a big date for us, Um, that deer coming back into his fall range for the first time, or that deer showing up November 7th um, because there's hot does in the area. So we see it all the way around the season.
1: Chad, so you said you went in there what the day after, or your your buddy went in there the day after and killed that nine? Yep. Okay, and then you mentioned like a three day window. So would mm-hmm. you say if you saw it on November third, you'd you'd be considering the second through the fourth? Is that correct?
2: Yeah. So we're making uh, weather
1: dependent at all, or how does that work?
2: Oh, absolutely. There's a yeah. There's a ton of variables in there. Um, when we look at that annual pattern, we want all the variables to be. Consistent. So that's pressure, that's food, that's you know uh, bedding, all the habitat. We we want as many of those variables to be consistent as the year as the year prior. So and it's plus or minus typically a day. So if deer shows up November third. We're looking at November second, November third, and November fourth. Hmm. And then if we're you know if we're really trying to grasp straws, we'll add we'll add uh, we'll t- add time on on the front end or back end, um, depending on what the weather is doing. Okay.
1: And and do you ever see that in maybe a, a land feature or a spot where your camera is more so than the deer itself as a historical repeater? So, like, maybe you have a, a, I don't know, a piece in the woods, maybe a knob or something that you guys located that every mid-October you get some daylight pictures of, a shooter buck, but it might not be the same one as the year before or the year before that, but it still seems the timing and that spot are are repeatable. Uh, do you ever find that versus
2: just the deer itself? Yeah. yeah. Um, not so much on terrain features, um, but on primary scrapes. So we run a lot of cameras on primary scrapes in that big wood setting, and, you know, I think it has to do with, you know, those coming into estrus. Um, when those scrapes are starting to heat up, and then you'll have, you know, your your buck parade. And that seems to happen the same time every year. There's one one scenario where there's a primary scrape between um, – there's a couple points that kind of create, like, this thermal hub. I should say this is most – a lot of this, what I'm talking about is in um, hill country, which is has pretty aggressive terrain for Ohio. Okay. But um, there's a primary scrape located on a bench a couple hundred yards from a thermal hub. Um, and then a couple hundred yards in the other direction, on top of the ridge, there's some doe bedding. And November, or I'm sorry, January first, second, third, somewhere in those three days, every year, that there's there's always a buck frenzy um, on that camera. And that's the only thing the camera's watching is a primary scrape on that bench. So it's kind of I guess it could be the you know you could argue and say well it's it's the it's the it's the bench it's the travel corridor coming from you know that thermal hover those those bedding points over to the dough, through the dough bedding, but in my mind, I guess I've always considered um, that activity engaging around around that primary scrape.
3: Sure. sure. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned putting everything in a spreadsheet. Is there a particular program you guys use for that or something you came up with on your own?
2: No, we just use Excel, um, and we're not – you know, I say spreadsheet um, – it's not super, super organized. I mean we're just a bunch of a normal guys. We're not um <laughs> we're not by no means any software engineers writing programs like Excel. So it's pretty darn basic. But we have used a lot of different um systems. I don't, maybe not a lot. We've used Deer Lab in the past and Deer Lab's a it's a great analytical tool. Um, and we use that for about two years. The challenge that I had with that is you're going through your pictures and you're uploading them, and it just didn't make a whole lot of sense for me because of the time commitment it took on the front end to populate the software to get your data points. So I just prefer to throw a card in my my computer or on my phone, and I'll scroll <laughs> through them, and then I'll have a little notepad and jot some notes down, and then I go back in and um, enter that enter that stuff in the Excel. Gotcha. And last
3: thing on the prep as we're coming up, uh, a lot of guys are trying to come up with some different techniques, maybe hanging cameras higher if they're mm-hmm. having trespassing problems or or trying dummy cameras. Is there any, any preparation uh, input you can give our listeners to maybe help them set up a better system? Absolutely.
2: Um, yeah, you know, it seems over the last couple of years, maybe five, six, seven, eight years, a lot of guys have been hanging cameras high because of um, you know trespassing or theft issues, and we've certainly spoke um, on that and have been advocates uh, for some of those high sets. But one of the things people don't realize is how much it alters and constricts your detection area of those cameras. So for example, if you have a camera that's ten feet up in the air and it's you know tilted down like on a forty five degree angle, which is a one-to-one, you just created a 10-foot gap underneath that camera before um, before it's going to detect anything. So you really have to be careful when you're using those elevated sets on what kind of areas that you're monitoring. If you're using them in, like, what we call static environments where you can dictate deer movement and, you know, deer is going to spend a lot of time there or you're trying to mon- monitor a very precise area, then you can absolutely do that. But when it comes to prep, uh, you know, We've kind of stolen some things from Jeff Sturgis and kind of wrapped some of um, some of his talking points into what we consider a, a spook-proof equation. And we do this on a, not every camera, but anywhere where it allows. I mean, you got to put the cameras where the deer are. I mean, that's just the basic common sense. So I don't right, want right. anyone to take this the wrong way, but we're in an area and we're getting ready to hang camera. We want that that the tree of the that we're putting the camera on, we want that to be wider than the camera's body, so the camera's not necessarily silhouetted. We, As far as height, we want that to be somewhere between six and eight feet. We don't want it down chest level, eye level with deer. We just, we just don't do it. Uh, on top of that, we do not use straps. Even though we sell cameras and everybody gets a strap with every camera they buy, we do not use straps. So a lot of times we're using paracord. Um, that's a lot less noticeable. And then if we get in a situation where we can put that camera in a split chunk tree or there's something that can block the side profile of that camera, we're trying to do that as much, much as possible as well. So I know it, it sounds like crazy that you're going through all this trouble to physically hang a camera, but the one thing that um, we don't want, we don't want to negatively impact deer movement when we're hanging cameras. Um, and, you know, from my experience in the big woods where there's not a whole lot of human intrusion we found the deer just, and every deer is different. Some deer, you know, they like to be on camera; they're 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 Hollywood actors. And then there's other other uh, there's other deer that take their picture one time, and you think that they they've left the county. Sure. So, in our opinion, we just want to minimize that as much as possible. Um, so, one scenario is uh, I'll give you a, a, a good example. Maybe listeners can wrap their head around um, wrap their head around this is that a lot of guys love hanging cameras on scrapes. Everybody loves scrapes. Everybody wants to run video mode on scrapes. They want to see that buck come up, hit the licking branch, maybe get on his hind legs, paw the ground, pee on his hawks, all of it. It's great. But when you stick that camera in the deer's face and you're five feet away from that scrape, that is just not a smart deer hunting decision in the way that you run cameras. So I like to stay back 20, 25 feet from whatever trail, uh, feeder, scrape, or whatever you're monitoring, I always try to stay back 20, 25 feet. Um, it allows your detection angle to work um, at a wider width, and then also your field of view increases as well as, you know, you, you get a little further back from uh, back from that target area.
3: Excellent. Yeah, that's a couple things that I can definitely benefit from. I appreciate you going through that. So let's move on to the uh, traditional versus cellular route now. There's there's so many options out there now with cellular cameras, and they're getting more affordable. Uh, when should guys and gals be thinking about adding cellular as opposed to traditional?
2: Well, I think, um, you know, if you're a guy or gal that is busy like so, so many of us, I think that's the real benefit of cell cameras is just allowing to – Be more efficient with your time. Everybody talks about how cool it is to get photos and videos sent to your phone, and no one talks about the uh, the time savings there. Um, So that's that's one big thing for me. Is you know if you're a busy person, you should be considering cell cameras. But outside of that, from a strategic, I guess, perspective on a property, you know, anywhere where you're going to be intrusive, um, hang hang a cell camera and. When you're hanging that, make sure that your power source is good. If you need to run external power or solar panel or something of that nature, go ahead and get that set up in August. Get those spots figured out, maybe September, and make sure your power sources are good so they can run for the entire year without you having to go back in and fidget or mess with that camera. Um, When we look at, you know, places or areas that you want to hunt, maybe like tree stand locations, it's kind of give or take. Like you're walking in there if you have pre-hung or preset stands, you're walking in there. It's nice to know like an in instant, like there's a, your target buck or a buck has, you know, been within shooting distance and it's awesome to get that in real time. But if you're, if you're a guy that, um, you know, has a set schedule and you're just hunting the weekends or you, you know, you're taking your recation and you're going down to your lease or your property, uh, you, more than likely you're going to be in the woods anyways. Um, and you if you're going to hunt that stand, then, you know, you can check a, a regular SD card camera. So, that scenario is kind of I guess personal um, what you what you what you personally what what fits you best I guess is what I'm trying to say um, and then the traditional cameras I, you know we still run a, a, a ton of traditional cameras we could we could run our entire fleet and sell cameras, but we but we don't you know in areas that we have feeders where we have mineral sites on field edges or access points, areas that we're going to be in regardless if we have a camera there or not, those are the places that we're using those SD card cameras um, because it just doesn't make – you're not getting the full benefit of a cellular camera um, on those locations. If you're going in to fill feeder every two weeks, like what's it hurting to, you know, pull a card out and, and check a camera?
3: Right. How about any tips for people thinking about getting into cell cameras? I don't want to throw any companies under the bus, so I won't mention their name, but a lot of uh, people have been having trouble – with one or two particular companies just saving money, thinking, "Oh, I'm going to get a bunch of cell cameras for ninety-nine bucks," and they're just disappointed with the with the outcome. What what should they be looking for when they get in the market for one?
2: Well, there's um there's a there's a lot of things, um, and unfortunately, there's there's a lot of marketing jargon kind of across the board in in the trail camera marketplace, and you know a lot of people. Are buying these things as tools, but they're using discretionary funds or their extra, you know, extra spending money. And often, price point is one of the one of the biggest factors. But I would say the things to look for would be your transmission speeds. Look at your transmission speeds and see how fast the camera can transmit those photos. Um, see what kind of cellular module is in the camera and what kind of network it runs off of. Um, most cameras these days, we've kind of gotten past the the 3G decommissioning, the 4G and LTE. I mean, basically everything now is 4G, LTE, LTE. But in years past, that has been a, a big uh, concern or mix-up, you know, with consumers buying cameras and then not them not working because of the outdated technology. Um, so as we move towards 5G and IoT, that would be something to consider several years from now. Maybe not right now, but several years from now down the road something um, to keep in mind. But your transmission speeds you want to look at, your recovery times is something you want to look at. And those aren't often advertised or marketed by companies. So a lot of people will buy a cell camera and they'll think, okay, I'm going to get pictures instantly set to my phone. Um, they get that that picture, that the camera set up in real time. The camera gets triggered, it, it takes a picture, it sends a picture, and then the camera is sitting dormant for two minutes because that's how long it's taking it to upload, and the camera is not responsive during that time. So that is something um, you probably won't see on a specification sheet or a box, but it's something you should call and ask about um, because it, it's a it's a very big deal. And then, you know, the camera, the experience with a cell camera is it's kind of twofold, right? Because you have a physical product that you're hanging on a tree on your property and you have to have it to work. But the bigger user experience because you're interacting with that daily. That's where you're getting your pictures. That's where you're managing um, you're managing your camera settings. That's where you're updating your firmware. So even though the, the camera itself is the purchase, the bigger part of the user experience is the software and the mobile app. So if at all possible before you purchase any cell camera, and even including ours, if you can download and get a feel for what their mobile application is, I think that should be a a large um, factor in your buying decision.
3: That's a good point. And now with the uh, 4G LTE cameras that are out now, you figure that's going to be a few years before those things are going to go by the wayside, so that wouldn't be a bad investment for now?
2: So uh, we've actually done some content on this in the last last 60 days because um, you know you get on some of these Facebook groups or forums and you know people see 5G being advertised and their their mind is instantly going if they're cell camera users they're instantly going back to that 4G and those devices you know that were 3G certified basically becoming paperweights. Luckily the transition. 5G is not necessarily going to take place overnight, and not as fast as uh, the 3G to 4G and LTE process. So we have we have about 10 years before it's a full-fledged 5G IoT world. And luckily, a lot the cell carriers, a lot of network providers, their focus is in major urban areas, major markets where you know high high population density. Where they can service a large majority of their customers, but then on top of that, the and I'll, I'll try to make this um, short and sweet because I know people probably don't want to get bored with all the the geek talk here. But 5G, <laughs> 5G is a is a it's a broader band frequency where you're able to move a large amounts of data very short distances, um, and that becomes a little less applicable in rural settings where you have Less towers to, to I guess, connect to, and and that's I guess to sum it up in in forty seconds. Um, but there's a lot of information on five G that you could Google and um, get the same insight.
1: Chad, you've listed off a bunch of great tips and helpful information so far, um, and kind of regarding that, the cellular and the five G. What do you do when you're in the hills of Ohio, you know, where Brian and I hunt, where you hunt? Um, I mean, are all your cameras up on ridge tops? Are you putting an extender uh, antennas? What if you want to get down on a bench somewhere? Give us a quick little one-two there, if you don't mind.
2: Yeah, so a lot of um, a lot of the cell cameras in that area, they are on, on ridge tops or closer to that upper one-third. And we're using booster antennas, like a 10-dbi gain antenna. Um Versus the the stock antenna on that camera, Uh, it decreases battery life somewhat. But you know, you you really don't have an option in some of those uh, low service or or low signal strength areas. Um, Where I am, it's very you know very steep ridges, almost like we call them hogbacks, but you know they're spined ridges. They're not flat on top, and the bottoms are the same way. You're not getting in any wide bottoms that are um, really even huntable. They're you know straight up, straight down for the most part. So running cell cameras there becomes pretty difficult. Uh, oftentimes you end up hunting for a spot for the camera to have signal versus hunting for a spot to hang the camera because there's deer sign. So one of the things we do with on some of those tops is we'll find scrape lines or we'll find a saddle or some terrain feature um, or scrape to hang that camera on. And if there's not none there, but there's still deer sign, then oftentimes we'll go ahead and make a mock scrape in those areas. And we've, we've, We've had pretty good success with that too.
1: Yeah, that sounds like great, Tris. Um, how do you make a mock scrape real quick? Do you use any sort of scent? Do you use, uh, you know, urine of your own or any any tricks like that? Just or just put it in their face and they take over.
2: Yeah, so we're, um, I guess we're we're not too industrialized or um, mainstream with with some of that stuff. We we take the Jeff Sturgis approach where uh, we'll put that mock scrape in their face, so it's you know not maybe directly on a trail, but maybe just a foot or two off. And a lot of times in our areas, we're finding a lot of scrapes under beech trees. So if there's a beech tree available, we're using uh, a beech limb and just some paracord tying that up, or we're using grapevines, like um, you know what Jeff talks about. But for us, it's you know we're not using scent. We will pee in it after we get done, but it's we're trying to visually match the natural, natural scrape in that environment um, to the tee. So, you know, a lot of guys, and, and again, this is just things that we've picked up from talking to so many deer hunters that most of the really, really successful deer hunters pay attention to the fine details. And that's one thing that we've seen a lot of people have in common. So when we're making these things, we're paying a lot of attention to how we're scraping the ground up, the shape of that. It's not necessarily a completely... Uh, round or a circle or even an oval, but it's kind of like a uh, like a wedge shape, like a piece of pizza, like a deer coming from one direction and scraping that kind of on an angle, if that makes sense. Where there's a where there's a slight radius on the backside and it's kind of maybe pointed, um, you know, towards a tree or or underneath that licking branch. Um, so for us, it's 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 visually making that as close to the real thing as completely possible, and then. You know, we're just peeing it after we get done. No, um, no, no sense. No, um, no preorbital glands, 10 or, or anything like that.
1: No, appreciate you going into that. Um, and 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 next, I want to get into something that you guys even touched on on your YouTube recently. Was uh, like GPS technology and how it pertains to your cameras.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I guess can you school us on that? Because that's, that's a new one for me.
2: Yeah. Well. Uh, you know, it goes back to some of the, the marketing jargon and some of the marketing stuff that you find um, in in the trail camera marketplace. Um, there's so often you walk into a box store and there's, you know, there's a lot of options. Um, and we've mentioned the price point. A lot of times will dictate that. But when you're going down and reading specifications on a box, a lot of times you'll find that camera companies are advertising GPS capabilities. And, When people think, when people see that, and they think about GPS, the first thing their mind goes to is the GPS in your phone or the navigation system in your car, where it it is, you know, you're within 20 feet and it's turn by turn, um, everything's automated. But it's it's a little bit different in, in in cameras, and companies can get away with advertising GPS because all cellular cameras can be tracked. So anything, basically anything with an IP address can be tracked, but it's not the GPS technology that you're used to like your phone or like your navigation system in your car. It's basically pinging or triangulating that position between cell towers. So again, it's a, it's one of those things that I guess companies stretch the truth on a little bit um, because it's not necessarily what consumers are thinking of when they see that acronym GPS. However, there are several models on the marketplace that do have true global positioning system technology inside that device where that is working uh, similar to your phone and it's, you know, trackable 24-7 within your mobile app. Um, so you just, again, and there's no way to for a consumer to decipher what is in that specific camera that they're looking at, but that, you know, going back to you know, questions to ask yourself before buying. If you see that GPS technology if that's labeled on the box that's written in the specification sheet, that is something you should be calling the company or customer service or product support and asking how that works because it's it could be very misleading.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I can see how a company will just put GPS on there and and use it for marketing or, or to look fancy and not I get what you're saying about how it pings versus an actual locating device. Like you can't just pull it up on your on your phone or, or whatever and have a satellite looking down on you, etc. That makes sense. I didn't know that. Um, I guess my my next question kind of leads to what new technology are you guys incorporating into your cameras? Now that you've been around the block for a while. Um, you know what's new 2021 here at Exodus.
2: Well, 2021 um we're working on some things for 2022 but we're not releasing anything new this year. Um you know, we've be- never been a we never been a company to well number one. We're small um and financially we don't have the the means to to put out three or four camera models uh every year just to have something sure. new to have something to be to market. Um so we kind of take the I don't want to compare us to Apple, but Apple's a company that not always has the newest technology, but they have up-to-date technology that's refined to make the user experience better, and that's kind of the approach that we that we take. Um, so I can't really say what we're working on for 2022, but there's some new flash units, some different image sensors, some different lens uh, setups that we're working on, as well as um, uh, some cellular stuff.:
1: Awesome and And then, uh yeah, no i don't I don't need you to give away the secrets quite yet we'll We'll pay attention and follow along uh, for 2022 um, I guess one more thing I wanted to ask you about was like audible levels in cameras. Kind of goes back to your to your spook proof setup, right um, Absolutely. i've I've been a fan of any camera that does not make a noise or a click. Uh, in, in my past, because I feel like the Michigan deer that we chase will look directly at it, yeah. take off to the next county, <laughs> move on, or at least never walk by it again. Um, I'm sure you guys are always considering that. When any tips or or just get a camera that
2: doesn't make noise. Yeah, there's um, I can speak on that a little bit. We've we've done some content around that as well. So there's two basic types of lens setups in a camera. You can have a um a single lens setup that has I'm assuming that we're we're talking about some type of IR flash, so either nine forty, which is nine hundred forty nanometer, which is black flash or no glow or invisible glow, whatever you want to call it. And then you have eight hundred and fifty nanometer flash, which people will consider like low glow or red glow cameras. So when you have a camera like that, that light is on a different wavelength. Um, than what that lens is tuned to. So you have to use what is called an IR filter, which drops in front of the lens and allows that image, that light to come through the lens, through the, through the filter, through the lens to the image sensor and then, then, then collects the photo. So in a single lens camera, that IR filter is mechanical. It moves up and down based on the light metering system. The light metering system is still on the camera, how much ambient light is available, if there's not enough light, then the IR filter drops, the flash unit fires, you get your picture, you get your video. Anytime that that camera, any, any camera that has an IR filter, there is always going to be an, a noise from that. Some cameras are worse than others. Some are more, more noticeable. Some are louder. Um, a properly engineered and properly designed camera with an IR filter, that filter will only drop twice a day. It's going to drop in the evening time at dusk, um, when there's low light, and then that filter should stay down until the sun comes up and there's ambient light in the area to take a to take a color photo. And then that that filter will lift. If you have a camera that's, you know, making that click or that noise every time that IR filter drops, it's a poorly it's just a poorly designed camera because there's no need for that thing to be moving up and down um, constantly. But when you get over to a dual lens system where you have a dedicated Image sensor and lens for daytime photos, and then you have a dedicated image sensor and lens setup uh, for nighttime photos, where both things are constant. Then the light metering system in that camera is telling that camera which lens setup um, it needs to utilize, thus eliminating any of the mechanical um, movement in that IR filter, thus you know eliminating any potential potential noise.
3: Awesome awesome. Chad, you mentioned about uh, leaving some cameras out for long periods of time and just letting them soak. What kind of power options would you recommend? Are you looking at lithium batteries or standard or solar panels or what do you guys recommend?
2: Great question. Um, typically, we recommend energizer lithiums. You get about um, about maybe a little north of three amp hours of capacity out a set of lithiums. And we like those because they're un altered or unaltered un, un, un- is the wrong word, unaffected by weather temperatures. Um, so you can be down into minus 20 or minus 30 and on the way, you know, to on the plus side of 120, 130, and the resistance inside those batteries are never going to change. So they're never going to leak, and they're going to give you a constant voltage output of about 1.65, 1.7 volts. So they're a little bit hotter than alkalines, but they're going to give you consistent power to that camera to the for the, for the camera to work properly um, versus alkalines. Alkalines, you know, they start at 1.5 volts, but if you look at um, the discharge rate on a chart, every time that camera or that device takes a picture or does something where it's drawing power, the voltage starts to decrease just a little bit. And as you get around, you know, 1.2 volts from a 1.5-volt alkaline, you know the battery capacity is going to read fifty some percent on that, but in reality you're you're almost at capacity um, and the alkaline battery only has one.5 amp hours of capacity so you're really only using 0.75 amp hours out of an alkaline battery um, before they're kind of toast plus they leak plus they you know the resistance is affected by um, by those extreme temperatures. so if you're if you're looking at double A cells, lithium is our kind of top choice with energizer lithiums if um you know if you're the guy that wants to run nickel metal hydrides and you want something that's rechargeable um you know good for the environment we prefer those over alkalines alkalines are typically our last choice and then if you're you know if you're in an area where it's high traffic or you're running video mode or something that is um a little more power-hungry, like a cell camera or something, then we're running external uh, power sources with solar panels in, in that scenario.
1: Excellent information, Chad. We have one final question for you here. I want to be respectful of your time, and, and thank you so much for what you've done so far. This one's a, a doozy, though, so okay. I want to know, when you're when you're hunting the hills of Ohio or going out of state, wherever you're hunting, Okay. Um, or maybe you're doing some habitat work or whatever you're up to. What's your favorite tree?
2: My hmm. like yeah, favorite Julia really
1: a doozy, but you know,
2: <laughs> favorite tree to hunt just in general. Favorite tree to hunt. Favorite tree for food source. Favorite tree for sign. What? Uh, you
1: no, know, that's a lot of good points there, but you got to pick one for for all of the above. Oh wow! Um, you could do for. Let's do hunting season. Let's do let okay. so you're scouting through the woods, and either you know you want to hunt around it or hunt in it. Really not picky
2: here. Just we okay. get
1: some pretty okay. interesting answers, and uh, okay. you learn some stuff from it. So, well,
2: I'm, I'll give you I'll give you two answers. Uh, be my my number one, and then my number two. Uh, my number one is going to be a beech tree, just because. But only beaches on flat ground, like on benches. Okay. Because. I find so many scrapes underneath those those beech trees in in southern Ohio, and oftentimes I'm hanging cameras there and then hunting in close proximity um, to those beech trees. So that is typically my my number one. Um, if I'm scouting, walking through the woods, doing whatever, if I see a beech tree, even like post-season, a lot of times they'll still have their leaves, uh, right. still holding their leaves. I'm instantly going over there to to check the scene out. Um, so that that's probably my number one. My number two is going to be and I'm not super technical on this, but just a cedar tree. Mm-hmm. Um I can't tell you if it's a you know eastern cedar, I'm assuming that's what it sure. is. But so in the areas that we hunt in southern Ohio, it's mostly it's mostly hardwood oak hardwoods forests with um actually there's a lot of poplar too, but your your, your typical eastern hardwoods basically. Not a lot of um not a lot of evergreen trees, not, so not a lot of pines, not a lot of cedars, but when you do find a cedar, 95% of the time, it's like a signpost rub, or there's just there's going to be a rub on it uh, the vast majority of the time, and a lot of times it's a signpost rub, just torched year over year over year over year. So anytime I see a cedar, I'm always walking over to it and um, taking a look at it.
1: No, great answers, great answers. And, you, and you're saying, like, the cedar in that woods is more of a, a rare tree, correct? Like, it's it's yeah. out of the ordinary, which is probably why right. the deer are focusing on it. I mean, I know they love conifers and cedars and rubbing on them and all the aromatic
2: purposes, but,
1: right. yeah, I see what you're saying. It's not like out in Missouri or wherever where there's millions of them.
2: Exactly, yeah. There's, you know, um, you look at a section of ground there, and there might be two or three cedar trees on, on that 640 um, sure. if you're breaking it down into in the, in the sections. So there's not a lot of them. Um, and oftentimes you'll find them on points or near a ridge top, And, uh, yeah, they're just – they're magnets. They're magnets down there. Yeah, great
1: point. Well, that was awesome, an awesome chat. I think our listeners are going to have a lot to consider this spring and then, you know, getting into their strategy for cameras this summer and fall. So – so thank you very much, and uh, please tell everyone where they can find you guys and and follow along with your fall.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you can pretty much find us anywhere across the, you know, social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, at Exodus Trail Cameras. Um, and then our, our website is um, exodusoutdoorgear.com, where, you know, there's a ton of good information there. And as far as blogs, camera information, um, you know, kind of A to Z on the educational side.
3: Awesome. One thing that we didn't cover was your warranty, and I hate to bring it up because I had a truck stolen this past mm-hmm. fall, but uh, super impressive warranty. Let our listeners yes. know how you guys handle that.
2: Yeah. So we, um, you know, it's we take it for granted. It's it's like uh, it's just part of our business, it's part of our our culture here, taking care of people, and oftentimes that is one of the talking points people want to talk about is the a, is a five-year warranty. Um, and for us, it's just like, that's, that's just what we do. That's what we, how we design our cameras. They're designed to last 60 months. And it's just, we don't really give it a second thought, but inside the warranty, you know, I spoke on trying to create a product that solved the longevity issue. And, um, you know, by being consumer direct, we're able to just spend a little more money on those components to make the cameras last longer. So we were the first camera company to, to offer um, a warranty that long, um, and over the past few years, you've kind of seen implementally cameras or camera companies kind of extend their warranty. I think Moultrie's up to a three-year warranty now. Reconyx has now jumped up to a five-year warranty. Um, so it's kind of cool to see, you know, this tiny little truck camera company with <laughs> seven or eight guys, you know, have a, have an impact um, over the entire entire marketplace. So that's kind of neat. Awesome. But then, you know, in addition to that. We've always seen you know uh, stolen cameras or cameras that have been chewed up by a bear or you accidentally drop it into a pond or it gets flooded out or you're run over your truck like it's I know how important these things are to people and it is a it's a kick in the stomach when when you go through something like that I mean I've had cameras shot with shotguns you know prior to um prior to owning Exodus, and it's like there's nothing in the world. it makes you feel violated. it gets you pissed. It's like, oh yeah, <laughs> how could somebody do this? So we felt like it was an area for us to stand out on the service side by taking care of those people and driving depth in our customer base. So you know as a D2C company, we operate on 50% margins. there's no no secret there. We're openly we openly talk about this. So if the camera is you know lost, damaged, um, misplaced. If 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 it's if it happens for a reason that I can't control as a business owner or manufacturer, and it happens for and it, and it happens uh, because of something that's out of your control as our customer, we replace that camera for half. We replace that camera for half off um, one time inside that that five years. So it's just a it's just a way for us to extend you know further extend our customer service.
3: Oh, that's awesome. Appreciate you guys doing that and. Really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us today, and uh, hopefully we'll get Jake on here shortly too.
2: Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. It was uh, a lot of fun. It's always good to break up uh, a monotonous Wednesday afternoon with a good podcast. So <laughs> I was uh, I was grinning ear to ear when uh, we got this thing scheduled.
1: Well, thanks again, Chad. We'll be in touch soon, and uh, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab check out our HP land plans there we also have hats t-shirts and decals up at habitatpodcast.com of course all of our podcast episodes and then we have a new habitat podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts um, you know more of a blog post from us every now and then we'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram Facebook and YouTube found the habitat podcast and please subscribe that really helps us And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better Habitat managers.
0: Sure, with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double, he's
1: jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh.
0: Look at that Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Through the Blackwater Bayous and in the dark Louisiana night to Duck Camp, alive with the sounds of swamp
2: pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. From the Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun Prairies of the Southwest, me and the
0: Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.